there's a book that you uh, may be familiar with. You may have heard of the title. It's uh, entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus by the late New Testament uh, scholar F.F. Bruce. And uh, one of the sayings that Bruce identifies uh, Jesus uh, uh, stating is uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. There Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Indeed, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's a hard saying of our Lord. Not the kind of verse you're going to see on a Christmas card. This year or probably any year, I'm confident. But Jesus was not suggesting in this that the reason he came was in order to create divisions. He's using rather the metaphor of a sword to communicate that in his coming, in his claims, who he is, in his identity as Messiah, this would create an inevitable separation between those who would receive him and embrace him for who he is and those who would reject him. And we learn through the scriptures there's really no alternative. Jesus makes this clear when he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. There seems to be no middle ground. There's no uh, stance of kind of indifference toward the Lord Jesus Christ. His, His coming, his presence creates Inevitably, two ways, two paths. The narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. And as we continue this morning, in the second half of the prologue to John's gospel, John chapter 1, we see that in the coming of the Lord Jesus, the word eternal, it does cause a kind of separation. How will people respond to this word this light coming into the world. So it's John chapter 1. We'll read from verse 9 through 18. Listen now to God's word. John 1 verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If you grew up in the church or... You've been walking with the Lord for some time. You know that the Christmas season, this time of year, has a significant note or tone of anticipation and celebration uh, about it. Uh, Not only has the church 
traditionally throughout its history, uh, most of its history, dedicated a day uh, to the event of Christ's birth. But we have a whole season that precedes the event of Christmas that calls people's attention to it. It prepares them for it. We call that season we're in Advent, a word meaning arrival. And in this season, we sing songs reminding ourselves uh, and, uh, and calling others to embrace the, the coming Savior King, all in anticipation, building up. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Or we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Space, prepare him room. And for us who are Christians, there's a glad celebration. There's a reception. There's a a happiness about preparing to celebrate this uh, event, to receive Christ. I think of of new, new parents. Some of you are new parents, anticipating the birth of their own child. They create the best and warmest environment for the arrival of that new person. They purchase the best crib that they can afford. If it's your first child, you may not be fully aware that for the next 9 or 12 months they're going to be in your own bed. But nevertheless, you get the best crib. You prepare as best you can. Uh, You may may decorate, paint the room that they're going to be staying in. Uh, You obtain the proper clothing. All of this is to bring uh, a kind of comfort to this child as they come into uh, into the world, to demonstrate a a wonderful reception and love to them. But if we could uh, transport ourselves back to the time of Christ's birth, his entrance into the world, his taking on flesh, the circumstances in a lot of ways were quite different, different, shrouded with all kinds of trouble and difficulty. First of all, upon hearing of the conception and the pregnancy of Mary, Joseph and Mary were nearly divorced, saved only by the intervention of God through this angelic message. When the time came for our Lord's birth, the scriptures emphasized very much the lowliness, the sort of unwelcome nature of his entrance, of his coming. Not only was there no place for uh, them in the inn, having to resort to a lowly room, a place among animals, uh, our Lord even being placed in a manger, but in time to come, Mary and Joseph would flee from their own town with the child down to Egypt as King Herod carries out this massive slaughter of male children throughout Bethlehem. And you read the accounts in Matthew and Luke of the birth narratives and overlaid, laid on top of that, is the 10th verse of John's gospel here in chapter 1. He came into the world, though the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. And in many ways, the the unwelcome nature of Christ's entrance into the world is going to mark so much of his ministry. His own family members would question his claims and identity. The religious leaders repeatedly 
uh, seeking to undermine his ministry, even end his life. And in the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus is uh, seemingly very vulnerable, and he's before a crowd who's shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. From his birth all the way to his crucifixion, in so many ways, the Lord Jesus Christ was not welcome. He was not welcome. And how true that is still uh, today in the world. Important for us who are believers is to see that it wasn't just the Herods of Jesus' day. It wasn't just those who had no room or the innkeeper or the Caesar Augustus's. It was ordinary, common people preoccupied with their normal, everyday lives. Those in danger are not merely those who are overt in their rejection of Christ or who claim to be staunch atheists. It's those simply preoccupied with self-interest. The late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, James Boyce, put it this way, Isn't it true that many people miss practically everything good in life through self-interest? If that's true of such things as friendship, beauty, love, and joy... How much truer is it that many miss Jesus? If this is us, Boyce says, even in a small way, perhaps we should pay attention to something our Lord said. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? He says, your real interest lies in finding the one who loved you and died to be your Savior. Now, we might wonder, at times, why the world, why people would not embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we might wonder why we struggle at times or often to make space, to make room for the Lordship of Christ in our lives, for His Word, for His presence. Well, many are the possible reasons that we might put forth. Uh, But I think critical here is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9. I think toward the end of Luke 9, to one person, Jesus called him and said, follow me, be my disciple. But he responded by saying, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And then Jesus responded, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It could be a a process of up to a year upon the death of one's family member till a year later when the bones would be placed in an ossuary box. So there's some time there. Nevertheless, Jesus is giving priority to something in regards to his words and his calling. In the same passage, just a verse later, it says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, it's not that saying farewell to one's family before a potentially long missionary journey is insignificant. Certainly, carrying out one's responsibilities in family and family burial is highly important. But notice in these texts, in both cases, these things come first in life for these people. Lord, let me first go and serve my family. Lord, let me first go and say 
farewell. You see, however small or however great the matter might be before us, it's easy for it to squeeze out what is to be first. It's easy for almost anything to become a first before that of our Lord, serving him, worshiping him, following after him. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. We, we sing, riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. Ruler of heaven, my treasure, thou art. But John, in John chapter 1, the apostle brings us to a deeper place as to why some would reject the Lord Jesus and others would receive him. And it comes in verses 11 through 13 of our text. Now, if you just glance over or recall from last week, the opening verses of this prologue, John 1, there's a tremendous amount of momentum in these verses from verse 1 all the way up to 11, both in the depth of meaning and the flow of thought. If you just glance over it, we have this eternal word, the Lord Jesus himself, standing before creation. In the beginning was already the word. And then it is through him that all things are made. And then we are told that in him is life, true life. This life brings light to man. We're introduced to John the Baptist. John prepares the way, turning up the intensity of the light. And then we have this remarkable statement in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, it seems almost that this light is not only going to shine brightly to those who would receive him, this is a light that in a way shines for the entire world. It was coming into the world. The news is good, there's, there's momentum here. And then you come to verse 11, and there's this great divide. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In the same way that the terms light and darkness are a theme that runs through John's gospel, it's also true of this term and notion of belief. Believing. Very important in John's gospel in particular. Verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Belief then, really, its presence or its absence in a person's life becomes the distinguishing factor in those who will reject him and those who will embrace Christ and live a life after him. And it's the central purpose for which John is writing this gospel. As you come to the end of his gospel... He says in chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, there's the word, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John goes to significant lengths through his gospel to help the hearer understand that belief is not only necessary, but he wants us to understand the nature of this belief. A great place to see this is in the 8th chapter of, of his gospel. If you turn to John chapter 8, verse 31, 
It reads this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, there's the word. He said to the Jews who had believed him, just reading over that, you would think these are believers. And what did he say? If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It appears that these Jews had some kind of belief. But how do they respond to our Lord's words in verse 33? We're Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say that you'll become free? And Jesus goes on to say, if you were Abraham's children, you would not be seeking to kill me. Yet you are of your father, the devil. Their belief, clearly, in verse 31, is a false belief. Their belief, at best, was a toleration of Jesus Christ. So what is true biblical faith or belief? It certainly involves agreement or assent to something that is true, but it goes beyond assent agreement with something true. That that is not the ultimate test of whether one is a true believer in Jesus Christ. Both today or at the end. It's not going to be a, a, you know, a written test with propositional truths. Virgin birth. Strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree. Check one. Deity of Christ. Strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree. Check one. Of course not. The deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the Trinity, significant truths in Scripture. But one could actually assent and agree with those things and be absent of biblical faith and belief. So critical for us. What do we mean when we recite the Apostles' Creed? We believe in one God the Father Almighty. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. This belief is a relational trust. It is a relational trust. It is a personal knowledge of the Lord God. When John says in verse 10 that he came to the world, uh, but the world did not know him, another key word, did not know him. This is a relational, trusting Knowledge. In John 17, verse 3, it says, This is eternal life, to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And for all of us, sometimes the richness, the fullness of Christian joy and contentment in life is not experienced because belief is not getting beneath the surface of mere assent to truth rather than a relational trust or beyond to a relational trust. So biblical faith is this abiding trust. We we hear it when Jesus uses the metaphor of the vine and branches in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, I will abide in you. He's not merely calling for people to agree with him or with his words or his claims. It includes that, but it is a call to trust one's life to him. Take my life and let it be. 
consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. And the beautiful thing is that to discover and experience this trust, this belief, this rest in Christ, it's, it's to experience a coming home to where we belong. Because to get to the very bottom here in, in John's words in chapter 1, of why some do end up receiving him, why do, some do believe in him, is to discover that we came from him. He, in a sense, birthed us. That's what John says. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You come to realize this is my personal heavenly father. Think of a young child lost in the store or lost in the mall. They've lost sight of their mom or their dad. They feel completely lost. Other moms and dads might extend help. They realize the child is tearing up or hurting, but it's only when that child sees their mom or their dad, fears are dispelled. There's relief. A realization. This is my parent. This is my father. And there's a comfort and security. Well, through this prologue, the, the final thing I want us to see are the gifts that come that Christ gives to those who receive him, who do believe in his name. Wonderful gifts. The first is the assurance of truth. We could say the certainty of truth. Jesus comes as the word made flesh, full of grace and truth. Verse 14. And though, like in Jesus' day, we live today in a kind of global marketplace of ideas, uh, skepticism runs high, uh, where the only thing that people are certain of is that there is nothing we can be certain of. But John says that Jesus brings truth. Not only grace, he brings truth. More emphatic comes in John 14 with Jesus' own words. I am the way and the truth. I am the truth. That is, he is, in a sense, the window through which we begin to see more and more what is real, reality, the way the world really is, who we really are, how we might know God himself. An assurance of truth. Another gift is the experience of grace. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace, John says. The fullness of Christ suggests here the emptiness that exists in humanity. Think about when God created man. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature right? with physical and with spiritual life. Those words have a real earthiness to them. The picture is, is of God bending down, pressing his face against this form that he has made, man, 
and he's breathing not just natural life, but spiritual life into him. While the fall, in Genesis 3, we know the fall of man, the sin of man, left humanity empty, desperate, hopeless. What does Christ come as? He comes as the Word made flesh. More earthy language. But he comes as a man not empty. Not empty from sin. He comes as a man full of grace. Full of mercy. Full of love. Where fallen humanity is empty... The true humanity in Christ comes with fullness, with grace upon grace. He has a fullness of which he is pouring out. What does this mean? It's an unusual phrase, grace upon grace. A good way to understand this is to see it in the context of the first century people of God who knew only the Old Testament. While much grace is revealed in the Old Testament... God's mighty and gracious acts, dividing the Red Sea, the provision of the sacrificial lamb, the conquest of the promised land, a God who we're told repeatedly is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But it's in the coming of Christ that the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form is displayed the sacrifice of Christ on the cross once for all his ascension and reigning as king that we now have grace upon grace it's grace layered experiencing the grace of God how we need the grace to experience and know the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ And then the final gift is that through Christ one may know God. The last verse. No one's ever seen God, but the only God at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Maybe this God has only been an idea, a concept to you, but not someone you know. Christ comes and He offers a personal knowledge of God. It's a relationship offered in grace, It's defined by redemption from sin and death, and it's filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Might we make space, might we make room for the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might know and enjoy these gifts that he grants to all who would receive him, to those who would believe in his name. Let's pray together. Father, how we praise you for the fullness of your mercy and grace displayed in your son, Jesus Christ his ministry, his sacrificial death for our redemption, the cleansing and the forgiveness of our sins, for the promise of our inheritance to come. Lord, how we thank you that you have wrapped us up into this glorious redemption. And we pray that you would continue to form us and be merciful to us, that we would experience your gracious hand in our lives. And by your Holy Spirit, would you apply your word to us that we would know what it is to make room, to prepare him room in our lives. Most importantly, in our hearts, that he would be Lord of who we are. And Lord, as you do this work, build up your church that we might be a light within this dark world. 
reflecting the light of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.